Thanks, Brindley. Thank you, worship team. Wasn't that wonderful this morning? That was a, a lovely new song. I, I really appreciated it, and what a wonderful theme to it, abiding, abiding in the Lord. Um, if you've noticed, it's a bit cool this morning. I just mentioned to Finn, it's, it's really cool. Uh, apparently, it's to keep you awake, um, because I've got a, a fairly substantial message this morning. Uh, <clears throat> so, there you go. Last week, Steve shared with us a picture, and it was of two dirty boys. I was going to say it was a dirty picture, but it was two dirty boys. They were playing in their garden with a hose, and uh, it had been at one time a perfectly good veggie garden, but it was now a mess. Reminiscing can be kind of fun, can't it, as we look back. And as we remember back to our youth, for many of us, it's a little while ago. This week, I want you to cast your mind back to your own childhood and remember how mum and dad would always give you a little bit of a rev up, a little bit of, uh, a little before something was about to happen. We always got a reminder that it was nearly time for bed. It's nearly time for tea. It's nearly time to come in and pl- uh, come in from play. And with that reminder of the time frame, there would also come an instruction. So, it's nearly time for tea. Go wash your hands. Or if you grew up in a church home, it was, hurry up. It's time to go to church. Make sure you've done your hair. And make sure, for those of us of a certain vintage, make sure you've got a clean hanky. Can't go to church without a clean hanky. The purpose was, of course, to grab our attention. It was to reprioritize our thinking and our activities, to create within us a sense of urgency and expectation towards this coming event. This is something of what is in the mind of the Apostle John as he writes to these early believers who have been troubled by some with regard to the very nature of their spiritual and physical being. This evil deception has the ability to completely derail a young believer and cause them to shipwreck their faith. As we work through our passage today, I want you to see how John shows us how to do three things. One, to deal with deceivers and their deception. Second, to distinguish or discern truth. From error. And thirdly, how to live in the light of Christ's return. I think very apt for today. Let's pray and ask God's help as we unpack and understand this sometimes difficult passage. Let's just pray together. Father, 
As we come before you this morning, we come very gratefully for your word and for your Holy Spirit whom you've given us to unpack that word. Lord, may we hear with the ears of our understanding and see with the eyes of your spirit this morning what you would say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. John is very clear about his intentions for writing this little letter, just as he was when he wrote his gospel account. Steve told us last week that the purpose for writing 1 John was so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Later, John added, so that we may not sin, and so that you may know that you have eternal life. John wanted his readers to experience true fellowship with God and with God's people, but it had to be done on God's terms. John was aware that true fellowship with God and with each other would be hindered by a lack of zeal for the things of God and for a lack of, of resilience to stand firm against false teachers and their heresies. But of course, also, a lack of assurance of salvation. And so John begins in verses 18 through 27 by giving a warning about the Antichrist. I love the way that he addresses these believers. Bearing in mind that he's, he's writing from the island of Patmos where he's been exiled. And he writes, children. I don't believe that this should be read in a condescending tone, but rather in a concerned and, and loving fatherly way. Children. Knowing that this epistle is written in such a tender and caring way actually adds a layer of legitimacy and, and a layer of significance to what he says. It is the last days. Go wash your hands. <laughs> Little children, this is the last hour. Get ready for tea. John reaffirms to them that indeed, just as Antichrist is coming, of course referring to the man of lawlessness, which we read of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, many Antichrists have already come. And it's pre pre precisely, it's precisely because the spirit of Antichrist is so prevalent that we can discern today as they could back then that the season is near for the last hour. Notice the urgency has stepped up. It's not just the last days. John says it's now the last hour. And it's from that very sobering perspective that John instructs and encourages these believers. Look what he says here about those deceivers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Do you know that the vast 
majority of heretical, deceptive antichrists have come from or out of a deeply religious background. These deceivers, these men and women, they they know the church language. They know church culture. They know and can and do twist perfectly good theology. But for their purpose, driven by satanic and demonic forces, it's to build their own ego, to build up their own following, to build up their own bank balance, But secondarily for them, though primarily for Satan, is the demise and the falling away of those who might otherwise have professed faith. If it were possible to to derail those who already have. It springs to mind that scripture from, from John 10. He says, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. We're told in these last days that there will be a great falling away. And and I believe we're starting to see signs of that. There's been for a little while now uh, a separating of, of sheep from goats. Not only on an individual level, but I also believe in the corporate sense we're seeing whole churches, if not denominations, claiming to be the church of Christ, yet showing themselves to be completely apostate. One prevalent deception is addressed by John in verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. There were a couple of predominant heresies, philosophies uh, at the time. Uh, one was docetism, the other Gnosticism. One, both of these uh, denied Jesus' humanity. They said he was just a, a spirit being. Um, um, Arianism denied the deity of Christ. He said he wasn't, wasn't part of the Godhead at all, amongst others. Yet we know that Jesus was fully man, And he was fully God. Otherwise, the sacrifice on that cross at Calvary would have been in vain. It would have been unacceptable. It would have been insufficient. And would have been of no saving value at all. Today, some of these very deceptions are still alive and well. And they're a snare to many who are seeking God's redemption. In verse 22, John makes it very clear. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. The deception that face the deceptions that face us today, though, are at times a lot more subtle. They're more subtle than simply denying who or or that God actually is. 
It's not the patently evil we often struggle with, but rather those issues that have once had a, a strong theological claim, but have been over time watered down. They've been mixed with error, and they form an amalgam, an alloy of deception and truth. One such is a predominant one these days called the soft gospel of cheap grace. This, this false gospel will tell you, not that it is a gospel, this false gospel will tell you that you just come to Jesus and all your problems are going to disappear. <laughs> Repentance is old-fashioned and it's harsh and we don't want to dwell on the negatives. God's all love and just wants everyone to be happy, healed and home free. But like the, the carnies at the show, isn't it? Every child wins a prize. Another deception appears in statements like, if you're having trouble in your Christian life, clearly it's because you are not truly saved. Your faith's not up to to snuff. It's not up to scratch. You struggle with temptations, with disciplining yourself to, to a daily time of prayer and the word. and You struggle controlling your temper and thousands of other things. Well, obviously, obviously you've never been truly saved. Someone said, there's enough heresy inside the walls of your church to start 12 new cults by breakfast. I tell you, I doubt anyone would deny the existence of heresies within contemporary Christianity or, or be unaware of the dire satanic consequences of following them. So what's the antidote to heresy of any kind? Right thinking, orthodoxy. Right thinking, orthodoxy says, it would help a great deal if you knew the word. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Whoever wrote that might well have read 1 John 2, 24 to 28. I want you to see that John draws our attention in this passage to three abiding things. Let's read together. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you need no one. Sorry, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, it is true. And it is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in, coming, in shame at his coming. Three things, three abidings I want you to look at here. 
what you heard from the beginning. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The basic tenets of the faith, faith, sound biblical doctrine, that's God's word. Abide in the word of God. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Psalm 119, 105 tells us that your word, O God, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And of course, Paul could tell us from Romans chapter 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it it is the power of God unto salvation. Verse 27 is our second abiding The anointing which you received from him abides in you. That's not rocket science. That's not mysticism. Friends, that's just the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. And the third, verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him, in Christ so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Abiding in Christ defines our lives. It provides guidance and it gives strength and it gives us confidence to live in an antagonistic and hell-bound world. Regarding God's Holy Spirit, Paul could tell us in Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You see, the moment you believed, God sent his spirit to live in you, to dwell within you, not to come and go. If you truly believed in Christ, then the indwelling Spirit of God remains in you. He abides in you. Listen to what Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit's role, his function, if you like, in the life of a believer. John 16, 13 and 14, when the Spirit of truth comes, and he has if you have confessed Christ this morning, when he comes... He will, sorry, just lost my place. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Does that make sense to you? John wants us to recognize that the word of God and the indwelling Holy Spirit together are our best defense against heresy and error. When Jesus says that he, the Holy Spirit, will guide or lead you into all truth, he's talking about that spiritual discernment. 
that he gives to us. It becomes more apparent, becomes more clear. We get to understand it a little bit more. The more we commune and spend time with God and the more we interact with his word. Now, Steve mentioned at the beginning of this little series, the structure of 1 John is kind of cyclic, showed a picture of this staircase, spiral staircase. John revisits this theme, building themes, building on them and, and dealing with them again and again on, on higher levels, higher, higher planes. He does the same here in verses 18 through 27 with his call to be aware of the antichrists, which had become so prevalent and had tried to disseminate false doctrine amongst the, the, this young new church, this vulnerable little group of believers. But he, he picks up the theme again in 4, 1 to 6, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. But this time the angle is not just about being aware of, of being able to discern the spiritual error, but to apply a test to ascertain the authenticity of these so-called teachers. There's a test. Uh, 1 John 4, 1 to 6, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. One of those errors which has crept into modern church life and seems to have been absorbed from the, the Christian, the post-Christian, post-truth culture of our contemporary secular society. The, this wrong understanding rides on the back of what I call the tolerance movement. It insists that all views are acceptable and no one viewpoint is to have more credence than any other. When combined with and strengthened by, uh, again, what I would say is this subjective truth philosophy, we can see how this is a, a direct, devilish, and destructive contradiction and attack on the very truth presented to us from the Word of God. That subjective truth philosophy, of course, is simply, well, what's true for you isn't true for me. Truth isn't truth anymore. We'll just make it up as we go along. This understanding or recognizing the truth is more than just having a particular worldview, though. 
Because without divine intervention, the world will never see or understand the truth. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the natural man discerneth not the things of God. But folly to him. He cannot understand, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, today if you're sitting here and you have not committed your life to Christ, you're not following him, you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then all this is probably just a just a long-winded talk that makes no sense to you at all. One of the loudest catch cries of recent times has come from a certain sector of society which has blatantly and patently run afoul of God's law. And when presented with the truth of their sinfulness, retort, don't you judge me. Doesn't your Bible say you're not meant to judge? Judge not. Well, sadly, many who claim to be followers of Christ and some of the more mainstream denominations have been duped and actually believe this deception because they simply don't know the word of God. We would say that they are biblically illiterate and they are certainly not being led by the spirit of God if indeed he even indwells them. In fact, far from not judging, the Bible often demands of the Christian to discern or judge. Judge the intent and the character of others. Psalm 1 is a classic. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. How do I know where to sit and stand and walk if I can't discern that that person is a sinner, a scoffer? A liar. If we have no discernment, how are we to judge? So how is a person trained in discernment? Verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the key. Intimacy with God by his Holy Spirit in his word. Our spiritual strength to not only endure but thrive for the kingdom in this corrupt and ever chaotic word world lies in our intimacy with God through his word by the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. But of course, sin is now an unpopular word, isn't it? We much prefer words like error, accident, mistake, failure, whoops, missed it, <laughs> addiction, fault, a slip-up. Sin has been downplayed, minimized, so that it has become socially palatable. Sadly, it's now more palatable too in many churches. Chuck Swindoll says on this topic, when a person today hears the phrase, what you're doing is sin, they probably won't hear it as, 
I love you enough to point out the destructive behavior in your life. Instead, they're hearing something like, I'm judging you. He goes on to say, the idea of loving sinners enough to help them deal with their sin is lost on a world which has downplayed that three-letter word. And so although the word sin may have been cancelled from our modern vocabulary, the trait of rebellion in the human heart, against man, uh, in man's heart against God, has never been more obvious than it is today. Come back with me now to that section in chapter 2, verses 28, through to chapter 3, verse 3. Big chunk, but let's... Crack on. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. One John three. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. That's those... Oops. Beg your pardon. John, uh, verses 4 to 9, uh, John gives us a list of bad fruit which is produced in the lives of the unregenerate. Those that have not been born again and, and experienced that life-changing grace of God comes by faith. It comes by faith in, in believing in Jesus' death on our, on our behalf at Calvary. But to summarize that, this passage, John says, the righteous practice a righteous lifestyle, whilst the unrighteous practice an unrighteous lifestyle. It's not rocket science, is it? But we must understand the intent of that word practice. When it says no one who's a Christian practices sin, what that means is it has not become your lifestyle. It's not what marks you. It may be a slip-up. It might be a photo in the great panorama when we fall. And we do fall. That's why John could put in there in chapter, uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin. So that, that's, that's, our, that's our release valve. Huh? That's where we go to when we do sin, and we will. But it's not our lifestyle. It really carries the thought of making that lifestyle out of whatever it is, sin or not. So the person's life is either marked by an attempt to purify his life and aim by the power of the Holy Spirit to embody and align his life with the truth found where? in God's word with little regard 
for the things of this world. The things of this world will not sway him. If his eyes are on the Lord, he's purifying his life and aligning it with the word of God. But the truth of God is not found in the unsaved, in the unrighteous. The self-serving rebellion against God is what marks his life with little regard to his fellow man. The lifestyle sets the trajectory. And the lifestyle itself becomes the bowl with which we see the fruit. We can discern the condition of the person by the lifestyle. Beware of false prophets, Matthew says in chapter 7, who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them how? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. And so every healthy tree that bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Simply put, lemons don't have apples and apples don't have oranges. You'll know the tree by the fruit. The fruit is the lifestyle, not the one-off events. It's the lifestyle. So to conclude, if you are truly born again, John says that you've had a change of management. You've been adopted by God the Father, and you are now a child of God. As a child of God, now you start to grow and produce the same fruit as your father. You know how you can look at people's children and you can see those traits, can't you? You can see dad or mum in those kids, the things they do, the way they hold a pencil, the things they say. Do you look like your heavenly father? Are you behaving and talking like your heavenly father? Let me conclude with what John says in verse 9 and 9 to 11 of chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice, a lifestyle of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice lifestyle, righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have from, heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Friends, this morning, I, I, I hope you've been given an opportunity to, to assess our lives, both as as those who are already on the journey of faith and, and some who are yet to start, to do, yet to decide to follow Christ. Can I encourage both camps this morning not to neglect 
this offer of God's grace and mercy. Be diligent in the word of God. Be diligent in times of intimacy with Christ. And as we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word that was written for our benefit. Father, help us to be a people who, though we are frail, though we live in a corrupt world, though we fall, Lord, may our, our intention, may our lifestyle be one of pursuit of holiness. Lord, we, we try daily to honour you in our lives. But Lord, sometimes we fail. And for that, we pray your forgiveness. We confess and own our sin. But Lord, we know that there is redemption, there is cleansing, there is fullness and salvation in Christ. And so for each one here today, I pray, May we have our eyes opened to the deceptions of this world. Lord, even as we know the reality of Christ, may it be in stark opposition to that, which is the Antichrist, that we can discern, to understand, to know, and to stay from. Father, help us to be salt and light. Help us to be those people who know and love their God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together in